If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you and challenge you to meet me in Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. Now we're going to continue our study through the book of Esther. If you don't have your Bible, that's all right. Some of the verses will be up on the screen. If you don't know where Esther is, uh, you go to Psalms and you kind of go backwards and you'll find Esther there. It's kind of a hidden gem in your Old Testament text. I'm going to begin by telling you one of my greatest concerns with the church in America. I believe that due to our prosperity and our comforts, that we as a church have become complacent. Our complacency has led us to wrongly believe that the Christian life is no longer a life of war. Now we war as Christians in three particular areas. The first area that we see the scripture shows us is that we war against our flesh. And the positive, this would be the pursuit of holiness. Not only that, but we war against the cultural philosophies and ideologies of our day that kill human flourishing. But thirdly, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, he says, we war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Satan is real. He is alive. And he seeks someone to devour. Along with his army of demons. But I think many of us in our American Christianity, we have become so complacent that we look at the Christian life now as a time of peacetime instead of a time of war. We cruise through life struggling with and nearly falling apart when first world problems occur. C.S. Lewis, in one of the greatest books he ever wrote called The Screwtape Letters, he, he captures the essence of our problem. The problem with prosperity and cultural comforts. If you've never read Screwtape Letters, it is a letter where a de the devil is writing letters to a younger demon. And in this, he says, as you are out there and you are fighting against these people of Christianity, he says one of the things, one of our best weapons against them is what he called contented worldliness. The idea is that a happy and eased life of worldliness moves the Christian away from being battle ready to complacency. And as a Marine Corps officer, I will tell you that one of our slogans was always complacency kills. One of the many ways this morning that you can tell if you have become complacency in your Christian walk and your Christian faith is, is how do you respond when we read texts like we read just a moment ago and our opening Text that say, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Text that say, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 to 20, he says this, behold, church, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. One of the greatest missionaries to have ever walked our planet, besides Jesus, who was sent from God to save us from our sin, was, in my opinion, the Apostle Paul. And we all love the Apostle Paul, right? He's my second favorite guy in Scripture. King David is my number one. Jesus is obviously the first. But do you know what Paul's ministry was purposed and designed to be? When Jesus comes to Ananias and says, you're going to go to Saul. He's going to be my servant. This is what he says. Jesus says to Ananias about Paul's ministry. He says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You ready? Here's his purpose. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, in hearing that. You could have a few reactions in this room. Maybe you, some of you are shaking your head in disbelief. Saying to yourself, well, Jeremy, I don't want to be hated by people. Well, Jeremy, I don't want to be persecuted. That's just, that was then. That's the Old Testament stuff. That's the, the New Testament early church days. We're, we're not going to deal with that today. Well, let me just tell you, we have brothers and sisters across this globe who are dealing with that right now. So it's not done. Perhaps some of you feel anxious at the thought of being persecuted by worldly powers. Maybe some of you began to secretly doubt your faith. Saying, ah, if the Lord came to me and said, this is, I must suffer for his name. I don't, I don't know if I would still follow Jesus. And the problem is, is, I think that we in the American church have become complacent because of our prosperity and comforts. That we no longer believe that those truths are truth. I'd say, I would say... That we have fallen asleep almost in our faith. Maybe it's time for us to recognize through Esther chapter 3. That we have traded the reality of the Christian life as a war. For a gospel of health, wealth and happiness. My prayer this morning for you. And for myself. Is that God would awaken us to the New Testament teaching. That our life is a life of war. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be thankful for the blessings of that we live in a country that allows for freedom of religion and prosperity. But I am saying that when we look at Esther chapter three, we need to be warned. We need to be vigilant. We need to be aware that the people of God have always been and will continue to be until Christ's return persecuted for our faith. And when we look throughout Israel's history, we see this happening. When we look out throughout the New Testament history, we see this happening. When we look through early church history, we see this happening. And when we look at Esther 3, we see this happening. But this is what the text is designed to remind you and me, brothers and sisters. Designed to remind us when when Christianity and culture are in tension with one another. And this is what I want you to take away from today's sermon. If you write notes, write this note. We must remain faithful to the one who is always faithful. No matter what you're going through this morning as you walked in here, we must remain faithful to the one who is always faithful. 
Now, now, before I dive into the text and give you the details of persecution and the way that it comes about, <clears throat> I think it's really important that we start at the right place. So what I'm going to do real quick is let me give you a summary, a brief summary of Esther 3, and then let me show you the one who is always faithful, okay? So in Esther chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> some caught in my throat, Haman, excuse me, Haman, the Agagite, boo, bad dude. The Agagite, he's been promoted to serve basically as the prime minister of the Persian Empire. Basically what this means is he's second in charge. And the time period between when Mordecai discovers a plot to kill the king in Ezra chapter 2 and Haman's, uh, his, his promotion to be the prime minister is about five years apart. And at the order of the king, when Haman comes into the gates, everybody is supposed to pay their respects by bowing, paying homage to him. But there's one guy who doesn't pay homage to Haman and his name is Mordecai. And this infuriates Haman. So much so, he's so mad at Mordecai for not bowing to him, probably because of his pride and his arrogance, that he makes a plan. He brings a, a, a plot into, into uh, reality where he says, I'm going to kill Mordecai and all of his people. Basically, he gets the signet ring from the king, which is a, a position of power and authority, to go out and to commit mass genocide against all God's people. Now, we have seen before that the king is still a moron. That was one of my points like three weeks ago. He's still a moron. And so he allows this to happen. He gives Haman the privilege and the ability and the power to go out and commit mass genocide against this group in his kingdom. And at the end of chapter 3, we see that once the letters have been delivered for execution, Haman and the king sit down and drink. And everybody in the whole kingdom is thrown into chaos. But here's what we have to understand. We have to start in Esther chapter 3 at the proper location. You see, if we focus on Haman or Mordecai or Esther in chapter 4, we will make a grave mistake. The mistake is that we have the power as human beings to get out of these situations. One of the realities is that so many times when we read the scripture, we put ourselves in the place of God. Instead of allowing God to be in the place of himself and we submit to his power, to his providence and to his faithfulness. So we have to understand before we can walk the Christian life, we have to understand that God is faithful throughout the Christian life. So this is the tenet number one. This is the, the backbone of Esther three as we make our way through it is this. Ready? God is faithful and out of his faithfulness, who he is, he always keeps his promises. God is faithful and, and out of his faithfulness, he always keeps his promises. See, this is the question that the Jews in Esther chapter 3 would be asking themselves. They would be saying, God, do, can you still save us? Are you still going to keep the covenants that you made with our forefathers? Because we're being punished from walking away from you. We're being punished for sinning against you and you have moved us now into Persian exile. And so the question is, we are about to be killed because we are identified as your people, the Jews, by the hand of the evil Haman, will you still deliver and save us? Because you made a promise many years ago that you would. Now, let me give you a quick spoiler alert. The answer is yes. Okay? Because God always keeps his promises. You see, you and I need to remember, take our, our theological minds back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
Uh, scholars, theology, theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God made a promise to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, through your bloodline, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And when we look at the New Testament, we understand that that covenant was pointing to Jesus. And God said, I promise you that through Jesus, all the peoples of the earth who repent of sin and trust in his work will be blessed. They will be, quote unquote, saved, delivered, redeemed. But here's the problem. If Esther chapter three comes to fruition, if all the Jews are killed in Esther three, you know what that means? That means there would be no Jesus. And if there is no Jesus, then you and I are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet God's mighty hand of deliverance saves his people yet again from certain destruction and annihilation. God's covenant didn't end in Esther 3. He delivers his people. And then as we continue to read the scriptures, we get to Matthew 1. Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes from the lineage of Abraham. And Jesus comes by God's love, by God's grace, by God's mercy to live the life we couldn't live. Die the death we deserve to die and victoriously and gloriously resurrected from the grave to prove that he did it. He won. He is victorious. He has defeated sin and death forever. You see, God's promises are what helps us endure during times of tension with the world. God's faithfulness helps us remain faithful even when all seems lost and hopeless. In other words, God always delivers on his promises. And, I, and that, I believe, gives us the ability to faithfully walk with him during our lifetime of war. Perhaps two ways to help you think about this. Number one, God promises... That for all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's a promise. And as believers, that's a promise that we should cling to every single day. Every day you wake up, you need to preach to yourself the gospel. God promises that our salvation is secure through the work of Christ. It is guaranteed no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do. The work of Christ has the power to save you. And God promises that if you repent of sin and trust in Jesus, you will be, not could be, not might be, not maybe. He says you will be saved. This means that if you experience an Esther 3 situation, you can walk faithfully through it because you are secure in Christ. Number two. Another promise that we can lean into in an Esther 3 situation when death seems imminent is this. Death is not the end for the believer. Hello? When the Hamans of this world try to kill us, in fact, even if they succeed, God promises that death is the beginning of eternal life with Him. That's why I think we love the story in the book of Esther. When she even says, I, if I perish, I perish. If the, if the Hamans of this world will want to kill us for our faith, they don't understand that when they do it, that when we breathe our last, we step into glory, into our fullest reward and treasure with Jesus. Like Paul, we can look at the Hamans of this world in confidence and say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. You remember many years ago, that sad reality of the Columbine shooting? 
And that young woman was asked if she believed in God and she said yes and she was martyred for her faith right there on the spot. What that, what that evil gunman didn't realize is in that moment he gave her a gift. Eternal life with Jesus. Thank you. I'll take that any day. Do you see why it's so important that when we get to chapter 3, we must start with God. God is truly faithful. It is his, one of his attributes. And it's by his faithfulness that he is able to deliver on his promises. And because he is faithful, we are now given the ability as Christians, the hope and the power as Christians to walk faithfully in the midst of war. So, since we start with God, now we're going to move to how does this happen to us? How, do, how does Esther 3 happen? How does persecution come to the Christian in the tension that we have with the world? Reason number one. You ready? So we get into Esther chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 first. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. In other words... We are not what Jesus taught us to be. Gentle as a dove and wise as a serpent. Sometimes we're just not smart. Sometimes we're just not wise. And sometimes we're just not gentle. And so sometimes we bring persecution on ourselves. Now, I don't want you to believe or think that Haman is not the evil man in this story. He is. He plans mass genocide. That is an evil act. Okay? Can we all agree to that? But Mordecai also contributes to these actions. So he's not responsible for Haman's evil plot, but he is responsible for his own actions. And what happens is, why, why does Haman decide to, to, to kill all the Jews? It's because he gets mad at Mordecai. Now, why is there tension between Mordecai and Haman? And the answer is because in, in Hebrew literature, when you read the Hebrew text... Uh, the Hebrew literature always in stories, they, they, they put, at the, when, the, when a name is first introduced, they give some details to the name in order to give you kind of who that person was. Alright, so for example, when Mordecai uh, uh, comes on the scene in Mordecai chapter, or excuse me, Esther chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. Now there was a Jew in Susa the Citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Okay? So we, we get an identity of who Mordecai is. He's a, a Benjaminite. And then in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, we see that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Alright, so now you have two people groups. You have the Benjaminites and the Agagites sitting here. Now, I don't have time to get into the history of this for you today. So, if you want to take notes, uh, I've got some written down. Exodus 17 is a good place to start. Deuteronomy 25 and then all of 1 Samuel 15. Kind of give you the, the background, the history between the Benjaminites and the Agagites. The author is trying to show us that these two guys come from very two different groups. And the Old Testament shows that these two groups hated each other. Let me give you a, a, a common analogy, okay? It, it would be like Longhorns and Aggies. I was going to say T-sips, but I didn't know if you knew what a T-sip was. Thank you. I'm, obviously, I'm an Aggie, okay? If that, if that doesn't give you the idea, all right, everybody knows this one. It would be like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Kevin Costner made the movie. 
This is how bad this is for this reason that I believe that Mordecai is not bowing and paying homage to Haman. Now, scholars have argued about this for a long time. Some scholars believe that that because uh, this idea is that the king ordered the people to bow to Haman. And the reason for that is by bowing, it was showing him or saying identifying him as a deity. But but I don't really see that carrying in the text. In fact, if there's only one character in this story that I think thinks he's truly God, and his name is Xerxes. Esther chapter 1. Like, I think he really believes that he is, he is a deity. So I don't, I don't think that really fits the narrative. But it looks like these two guys have a grudge against each other. And so Mordecai's like, I am not going to bow to an Agagite. And Agagite Haman, who is very proud, is very angry that Mordecai will not bow to him. And so then what does this pro- provide? This provides Haman an, op- an option. And the option we see is in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. That was his revenge. But the reality is, Mordecai was not bowing to say that he was a deity, refused to bow because he just didn't like the guy from where he was from. Listen, the reality that you and I need to take away is that sometimes we bring persecution on ourselves. Listen, brother and sister, being a follower of Jesus in any culture already brings enough pain. Right? It brings enough pain, it brings enough suffering, and brings enough persecution all on its own. We don't need to add to it by being unwise, hasty, or harsh. We need to embrace Jesus' teaching. Be gentle as a dove and wise as a serpent. But yet, how many times do we do this in our own culture and our own lives? Let me give you two, two examples that I thought through this week. Number one, sometimes we post things on social media platforms that just get us in trouble. Maybe it's something harsh or inappropriate or an opinion that is presented as fact. And let me tell you, that happens a lot more than you think. Or just being rude, treating people poorly or slandering them publicly in these online forums, which brings shame to the gospel that sees all people made in God's image and in need of Jesus. Here's my takeaway. You ready to be wise and gentle? Think before you post. I actually preached a message on that to high school students one time. And they looked at me like I was a crazy person. I'm not a crazy person. Think before you post. Before I totally dump social media, which I'm not going to get into that today. I actually made a post. I had posted during COVID the normative of the Lord's Supper and asking, calling us as pastors to think through whether or not we should perform the Lord's Supper through video screens. And man, I got... I got beat down by people both from inside and outside the church. And I'm like, Jeremy, you were not gentle as a dove and wise as a serpent. Because if you were, you should have just not sent that on to social media platforms. But listen, this is what it's like. Sometimes we are like Mordecai. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Number two, another way I thought about this this week. Sometimes we fight cultural issues with all truth and no love. All truth, no love. We see many people, Christians, take the fight to the people in our culture with just harsh realities and facts. 
And yes, yes, brother, we need to speak the truth. But sometimes we speak the truth with zero love attached to it. We tell people the truth and they know what we stand against, but we never show them where we stand in terms of our love for Jesus, which leads into our love for them. Yes, we fight for things like the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage, but we do so because we love our neighbor. And we are trying to show them how the gospel frees them from the bondage and brokenness of their sin. Again, what this text shows us is sometimes we bring persecution on ourselves because we are not gentle or wise in how we live in a hostile world. And sometimes, brothers, sisters, sometimes we bring persecution on ourselves because we don't live as good citizens in the culture that God has put us in. I don't have time to get into a whole discussion on the Christ and culture. I got a couple of references after service if you want to read them that are fantastic. That'll help you think through this yourself. But the reality is this. Christians should be some of the best citizens in the culture. Think of it like this. If you were going to go share the gospel in Afghanistan, how would you do it? Well, you would first try to get into Afghanistan according to their government policies. Then you would figure out a platform to work and live among the people. And since that culture is very hostile to the gospel, you wouldn't go out and just start street preaching. Your ministry would be cut very short. You would work with people of peace and small groups wisely so as not be, to be killed for your faith and still be a gospel witness. And I think that's what Mordecai was missing. He was missing the idea of being gentle and being wise. And in the end, what had happened is it didn't only, didn't only, only cost, almost cost him his life. It almost cost him the life of God's people. The second reason that we might be persecuted for our faith is because as called out people, we live differently. As called out people, we live differently. And Haman, is, he understands this when he has this conversation with the king. He's going to talk about the difference of the Jews in the king's Persian empire. So first off, what he does is he comes together in verses 7 and 8. He comes together and he, he, he casts lots. Or uh, the, the book says pure. So pure is the Persian word for casting lots. And lots are the Hebrew word for casting lots. And so basically, he, he kind of rolled some dice, if you want to think of it that way. That's the easiest illustration to give you. And what he was doing is as he was rolling these dice, he was planning his day on when he was going to kill all the Jews. And so we're going to see that day in the next section of the text when he, this, this plan of his, evil plan of his is going to be carried, carried out. So once he determines the day that all the Jews are going to be killed and murdered for their faith, he says this to the king in verse 8, starting in verse 8. He says, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. Okay? That's a truth. The Jews are scattered among the provinces. He says this, their laws are different from those of every other people. Okay? Partly true. They are different. Next, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that is not, it is not for the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. So here's what, the, here's what Haman comes to King Xerxes and says. He said, listen, there's some people in your kingdom. Yes, they live differently. Yes, but they're also living as good citizens in Persia too. We see this in Esther, right? 
Esther is taken. She uh, has a one night stand with the king and she becomes queen. She wins the crown. Right. So, so she's living in the Persian exile. He says, but they don't keep the king's law. Well, who's the only one not keeping the king's word right now? Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow at the command of the king. He says, so here's what I'm going to do, Xerxes. If you give me permission, I'll wipe them all out and I'll pay you blood money. 10,000 talents of silver to do it. Now, this would be very, uh, this would be very well received by the king because if we recall a couple weeks ago, the king has just got back from fighting the Greeks and he lost and most likely a lot of his treasury was depleted and getting beat. So he's like, yeah, I'm looking for any kind of money I can get right now. Now, again, Xerxes is a what? He's a moron. So we all have established that. So in his mind, he's not a good king who says, well, who are these people? Give me more ideas. Give me more thoughts. Because if Haman would have said, these are Jews, who's his queen? Queen Esther. And where is she from? Jews. You're tracking with me? There's a problem there. Okay. You don't go after your wife's in-laws and family. That's just bad marriage. That's like marriage advice 101. Don't do it. If you have problems, we, we have counseling available, okay? But the point is, the point is, he said, I'll pay you to do this. And the king, instead of asking all the questions, he's like, yeah, that sounds good. So he hands Haman the signet ring saying, here's my power to use to do what you want to do. And look what it says, the king says in verse 11. The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Listen, here's the point we need to take away. When you follow Jesus, you live differently. People are going to notice. And the enemies of God will seek to destroy you because of your faith. We continually, though, to walk faithfully to bring more people to Christ. Yes, we may look like the enemy of our culture. Even though we are prayerfully seeking to see the gospel bring others from death to life. So yes, we look differently. Yes, as Christians, we talk differently. We parent differently. We marry differently. We bury differently. We talk. Did I say talk differently? We social media differently. We live differently. We use our money differently. We use our homes differently. We are different. People should notice our difference. And the enemies of God are going to hate it. That's why Jesus says, don't be surprised when you're persecuted. However... They may see us as the enemy, but what they don't understand is we're not their enemy. What we want to do for them, according to God's command of be fruitful, not be fruitful and multiply, which is a good one, but the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We are trying to get them to Jesus. Yes, look at how I live. Understand I don't live this way because I'm a good person. Understand, I live this way is because what Jesus has done in and through me. And what he has done for me, he can also do for you. I heard a great illustration one day, and I want to share it with you about this idea that we may look like the enemy, but really we are not. A few years ago, I heard a Christian apologist named Rebecca McLaughlin. Not to be confused with Sarah McLaughlin, the Canadian singer who saves all the animals. Rebecca McLaughlin, she made this fantastic argument against uh, argument using an illustration from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. And yes, there is going to be a spoiler alert in here. But listen, Harry Potter's book ended in 2007. 
The last movie dropped in 2011, okay? You've had time. You've had time to watch and read. So this should not be that big of a spoiler alert. But she compares being a Christian to being Severus Snape. Now, as many of you may know, throughout the series, series Snape is not a well-known kind of audience figure. Some, in some cases, you kind of like the guy. In some cases, you kind of hate the guy. He seems to have it out for Harry at the very beginning. We all know that he was a bad guy who apparently turned into a good guy after Lord Voldemort killed Harry's mom and dad. And in the Half-Blood Prince, though, our views are changed into what we've always thought all along, right? There's a scene where Dumbledore's on top of the tower, and he's surrounded by his enemies. And he looks at Severus Snape, and he says, please, Severus. And Severus kills him. At that moment, all of us, when you read the book or watched the movie or did both, the books are better, my opinion, you end up hating Snape. You're like, he is an enemy. He's a bad guy. I knew it all along. Yet, at the very end of the series, when Harry gets a chance to look into Snape's memories, the man who we thought was the worst enemy actually becomes the good guy. You see, Severus loved Harry's mother, Lily. In fact, this is why he joined Team Dumbledore. Because when Voldemort killed Lily... It broke his heart and he turned sides. And he says this, when, when, when Dumbledore looks at Severus and says, please Severus, he is not saying please Severus as a means of pleading for mercy, but as a means to sacrifice himself to protect Harry, Malfoy, and the good guys. And in that, Severus becomes a double agent with Voldemort. And it's only after you understand that what Severus did, he looked like the enemy the whole time, but he ended up, once you've got the full picture of the story, you find out he's actually the good guy. In fact, Harry Potter names his son after Severus. And she said this, this is exactly what it means to be a Christian. The world sees us as their snapes. We look like they're enemies because we're different. Because we believe in sin. We believe people aren't naturally good. We believe in the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life, the value of all people made in God's image, protecting the vulnerable. God is the creator of the universe. We believe in an inherent morality and many other things that the world hates us for. And so they don't realize that we are like Snape, that we look like the enemy, but we really hold these views because we love God. And out of our love for God flows our love for people, including those who are our enemies. Yes, we live differently. And sometimes that leads to us being persecuted. But the interesting thing is, we are not the enemy. We're actually the good guys who look like the enemy. I hear Christians all the time who have been been plucked from the world and they say the same thing over and over. This is what they always say. I thought you were my enemy, but now that I can see by faith, you love me enough to tell me the truth. So may people look through the window of our lives and see Jesus, even if that leads them to think that we are their worst enemies. Perhaps through our faithfulness to the one who is always faithful, they will come to know Christ and then begin to understand that we were actually the good guys all along. Number three, and this leads me back to where we began with God. God reminds us in verses 12 through 15 that he always delivers on his promises. The question that we should ask as we're reading the text is, can God do it again? 
Can God save his people once again from certain destruction and annihilation? Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. Actually, let's look at 13 real quick. So when Haman gets the permission to send out the death letters, these, this is what the death letters say to everybody in the kingdom. Look at starting in verse 13. Look what it says. He says that you get to go to kill, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, here's the day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Most likely, scholars believe that once they killed them, they plundered their goods. That's how Haman was going to pay the 10,000 talents of silver to the king. This is the copy, he says. That was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Now, here's the interesting fact. In history, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, is actually the day before the Jews would have celebrated the Passover. The time that when God delivered them from Egypt with the blood of a lamb... So before they were to celebrate God's deliverance, they were set on course for complete destruction. Could you imagine the confusion and the questions they were asking? Would God save them again? Would God deliver them from evil? How could this happen? Why does it seem that bad people always flourish while good people always perish? And and if you're truly honest with yourself, these questions are warranted, right? Their questions are the exact same questions that we ask when suffering, persecution, and imminent death smack us in the face. And we're always asking that question, will God hold true to his promise of deliverance? And our answer, brothers and sisters, as we read through a text like Esther 3, and all of Esther is this, yes. Yes. You see, in fact, God has already done it. We were destined for death and destruction. Our sin separates us from God and we deserve to perish. We deserve to be annihilated and obliterated. Our sin means we are under a death sentence like the one Haman sent out to the entire Persian Empire. Yet God had a plan to deliver. He delivered on the promises for the Jews in Esther 3. And he delivered on his promise for us today. He brought deliverance and salvation from certain destruction through the work of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. You see, Haman's 10,000 talents of silver purchased death. While Jesus' death on a cross purchased life for all those who call upon his name. Through Jesus, the tides of destruction have been turned and he offers deliverance to all those who believe. So what does this do for us when we face the Hamans of this world or make mistakes that bring suffering and persecution and possibly death? Oh, we walk through them faithfully with the one who is always faithful. I would love for all of us in this room to end up like Bishop Polycarp, who's one of my favorite historians in church history. Bishop Polycarp was asked to burn incense to Caesar to declare him a deity. He was an 86-year-old man. And they said, if you don't do it, if you don't burn incense, we're burning you, Polycarp. And without hesitation, I think through the power of the Spirit, we still have these words recorded today. He said this, for 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? That's what it looks like to walk faithfully with the one who is faithful. 
That's what it looks like to walk faithfully in persecution, in suffering, in pain for the one who is faithful. That should be our response as believers when persecution and suffering come. Church, we need to wake up from our complacency. I believe persecution will come again. And we must be diligently prepared for it. It might come because we lack wisdom or we're not gentle. It might come because we're walking faithfully with God. The reality is that it is going to come. The Hamans of this world are still out there. Satan is still on the prowl. And it's time for us as the American church to wake up. Wake up knowing that Christ has won the victory. And we live in the promise and remain faithful even if Esther 3 happens to us today. Now here's three responses if this message scares you. Number one, if this message scares you because you realize that you are set for destruction. Destruction will come at the final judgment. If your name is not found in the book of life, God's going to cast you into eternal punishment. My plea with you is don't go there. Repent and believe in Christ's deliverance today. So this is your first response. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus and believe that through his work, you are saved and redeemed for his glory. And then walk faithfully in your newfound faith. Number two, if you're a Christian in here and that scares you, the idea of persecution scares you, don't be anxious. I'm going to ask you in a few moments to pray. Pray that God would change your mindset from one of complacency to wartime. Ask God by his power to help you trust in those promises that he has set forth in his holy word. And number three, here's what else I'm going to do. I'm going to come stand over here at the left side in a moment. As you spend, you're going to spend time in prayer. And this is, if you're suffering today, if you're hurting or being, even feel like you're being persecuted for your faith, I want you to know that God is more powerful than your suffering or our persecution. In fact, he may be using it as a means to bring other people to himself through it. But as Paul says, and I encourage you today, fight the good fight of faith. Keep striving and know that we as a church are here to lift you up. And so if you are, if you are feeling the weight of suffering or persecution or pain, what I want you to do is this morning, I'm going to come up here and I just want to pray over you. You don't even have to tell me what it is that you're dealing with. Just walk up and be like, just Jeremy, pray for me. And I'll just pray over you. And ask God to help you walk faithfully to the one who is always faithful. If you're here and you're ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you also come up and talk and say, Jeremy, I'm ready. I'll just pray for you and I'll sit you down and at the end I'll take your name and we'll talk this week. But if you're a believer in here and you're afraid of persecution, then what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you a few minutes to just bow your heads and close your eyes and work with God on this message. Ask God to help you by the power of His Spirit to remain faithful even if persecution comes. Pray and ask God to help you not to be anxious But to know that through his power, you'll have the words to say and you'll be able to faithfully endure. So this is your time right now. Close your eyes, bow your head. If you need me to come pray for you, I'm up here in the right.